to Essential Nola Cinema, a conversation between cinephiles about the past and future of New Orleans movies. I'm Randy Mack, and really excited today to have film critic Bill Arsenault here to talk about 1971's WUSA, a film that uh, I had never heard of. It blew my mind when I saw it. Joanne Woodward and, and Paul Newman are, have been heroes to me for my entire life. I grew up about 25 minutes from where they lived, and my mom actually took me to their house when I was a kid once. So I thought I knew everything about their movies, and then suddenly I discovered not only were they in a movie together that I had never heard of, but that it was shot and set in New Orleans. And that it's great. Yeah. <laughs> and in the height of the counterculture movement. Yeah, all of all of that stuff was just blew my mind. Yes. And then, of course, Anthony Perkins... Norman Bates himself is in it, and Norman Bates was a huge Broadway actor, and my mom was really active in, in Broadway, too, and so, and she, Anthony Perkins actually stayed in my house when I was a kid. Oh, wow. That's that's pretty cool, man. There's a weird connection to, like, the top three cast members in this, in a totally random way. <laughs> so, Bill, uh, I always... I kind of want to discuss Anthony Perkins coming to your house, man. That, that sounds pretty cool. Especially, that must have been, like, later in his life, huh? Oh, yeah. It would have been... Boy, early 80s, and I was just a child. So I didn't really know who he was, and I had definitely not seen Psycho. (laughs) So he was just like, he was just a tall, skinny, awkward guy. Which he is in this movie. Uh, You know, very much, almost like way more pronounced than normal for him, you know? Uh, Like, you look at a movie like Orson Welles' The Trial, based on Franz Kafka's The Trial. He's playing this very, uh, I don't want to say like totally anxious guy, but he's put in a very panic inducing situation that makes absolutely no sense it's completely absurd and that's the point but all of this is being built onto him and and it's just all this confusion and he perfectly articulates it but you notice that pattern in all of his movies pretty much perkins plays anxiety really well and when he's cast as an everyman there's a an interesting spin on it um i always wonder if the norman bates thing really became like an albatross to his career because of the Spock syndrome where you're you're suddenly so famous for one role that that's kind of what everyone sees you as, and they bring those expectations to every other role you do. That could be the case. It kind of reminds me, I guess the modern-day example would be Robert Downey Jr. as uh, Iron Man, Tony Stark, but the difference with that is that he came into that role much later in his career. As a matter of fact, he came into that role in his uh, redemption days, you know, when he was given a chance after years and years of drug problems. Do you think Anthony Perkins is playing an everyman in WUSA, or is he closer to the Norman uh, role? Because I can see both sides of it. He's almost like both sides of his archetypes. Well, I would say the film is is in a few different scenes, specifically towards uh, the climax, as we're reaching the climax, uh, and also specifically in how those scenes are lit. There's the scene with the police officers, or maybe they're detectives, uh, the G-men, so to speak, they come to his apartment in the rain, specifically a storm. He's, lightning is hitting. And what I love, too, about the lightning, it was very obviously studio lightning. You know, it was it was like uh, unrealistic heightened blue, you know, but it was perfect. It was theatrical. It was supposed to, you know, set the mood and everything. It made me picture uh, like a grip on the side holding one of those metal sheets to get the thunder right. effect. So the officers are basically coming there to intimidate him because... In one of the scenes prior, he was intimidating a, uh, um, a, a like a very uh, high-ranking, or maybe he was a middle-ranking uh, official in this big right-wing conspiracy thing, and uh, and they're shining flashlights in his 
in his face, you know, and they're like, Hey boy, you better not be messing around, boy. You know, they're, they're doing that whole shtick, but the, the lights are focused solely on his eyes. It's like the Shatner lightning, but it's not used to highlight like a heroic, confident person. It's used to, to try to like, um, to highlight there's something going on behind those eyes. You know, there's, you know, they, they, <laughs> that's kind of a recurring thing as we lead up to the climax when what happens happens. And I'm sure we'll get into that. Uh, so I think in those scenes, you can compare him to sort of a Norman Bates-ish descent into a radical and extreme action, you know. Uh, outside of that, though, I think he was also just an individual with uh, ideals and heavy PTSD from, um, uh, he, I guess he did some kind of uh, uh, social work in uh, South America is what he's alludes to a couple of times. I bet he was in the yes. Peace Corps. Yeah, that's right. And uh, the catch is, I think, that it was uh, some form of anxiety and PTSD from the bad shit that he saw down there. So he comes up here to get his job in New Orleans. He's a charming Southern gentleman type. And lo and behold, he gets caught up in a uh, conspiracy that completely goes against everything he believes in. Before that point, he was just this ner nervous, kind of timid, but very charming and polite gentleman. And then, boom, basically becomes a, a less confident but very assertive version of Christopher Walken in the dead zone at the end. Oh, yeah, you know it's a I mean? parallel. So, yeah, there are some psycho elements. That's a long-winded way of <laughs> agreeing with that to a point, yeah. So, yeah, I wanted to ask you, though, you're, as a New Orleans native, you're born and bred, is that correct? Uh, yeah, I was born in Metairie, uh, along with both my brothers. Cool. I think we lived here as a family for like three years after I was born, and then we moved to Georgia for maybe a decade, you know, something like that. But we eventually moved back and kind of got reacclimated to the to the area and the culture and everything, and I, I, I've just absorbed everything about it. You know, before that, it was kind of just something we did once or twice a year, visit family and, oh, the French Quarter, everything's kind of cool, but what is this? I don't get it. What? You know, I was too too young before to really understand any of this. You know, we heard legends and myths from our parents. Like, you know, my dad's family used to own, um, for a short period of time, the Embers Steakhouse. He would tell me stuff like, oh, this is supposedly the third floor. It's where Lee Harvey Oswald and all these other people developed the plot to kill Kennedy. Right. <laughs> but then he would tell me stuff that was, you know, verifiable, like um, Steppenwolf came in and th they were dressed like uh, dirty hippies or whatever. And uh, you mean you mean the band, not the theater company, right? Yeah, the band, not the theater company or the supervillain. So they're turned away and they come back. They're not wearing suits, but they are wearing ties. And ultimately they let them in and they just ate like pigs is what I was told. That's like a real WUSA moment, too, because that's like the counterculture meeting the squares, you know. Right, and there's there's there are quite a bit of uh, moments of like that in WUSA, you know. I think most of them uh, that I witnessed kind of came towards wait, wait, the wait. end. Wait, wait, wait. Before we get too far down that path, let me ask you, where'd you go to high school? No, I went to high school in, uh, in Georgia. We, I, we came here when I was 16 in early 2002. So ah. I went to a school in Gwinnett County. The very county that, um, and actually I was living in the very town that Larry Flint was shot at. Uh, uh, yes. <laughs> Lawrenceville, Georgia, Gwinnett County. I went to a high school that was kind of a, I don't want to say preppy, but it was definitely a much more affluent than we ever had uh, as a family. Although we were doing okay. Uh, Collinsville High School. And where did you first discover WUSA and what was your impression of it at the time? 
I discovered it like maybe a, a couple years ago. Uh, I want to say two or three years ago. I was, I'm a uh, subscriber to a um, video on demand streaming service called Mubi.com. Yeah. Just Mubi, M U B I. I highly recommend it. Uh, Lawrence Garcia, a writer and critic, he wrote a nice little um, article on WUSA being kind of like a gem that hasn't really, um, you know, something that's been forgotten, essentially. And I was absolutely fascinated and flabbergasted by it I, because in my college years, which were at Southeastern Louisiana University in Hammond, I got involved in a film group, um, still friends with all of them. And um, watching the movie and we're just learning about the movie. I was like, oh, my God, this this it's got some of my favorite actors, Paul Newman, Anthony Perkins, for example, especially Anthony Perkins. I was, that During that time in college, I discovered the trial and I was just absolutely enamored by the movie. And then, of course, you got the whole New Orleans setting. You got the uh, the powder keg of culture clashing. You got the counterculture. You got the the deep South old tradition ways that are you know the people in power locally that want to keep things in line. You got the uh, the poor community that are being exploited. Some of whom don't know they are being exploited. Some of whom do know. Uh, got, there's just so many things going on. It. I think the the one. Uh, takeaway that I got from this uh, recent rewatch was how wonderfully crafted the production was in terms of nailing down the environment of New Orleans the, it, into the feel of uh, not just the movie, but the, the setting itself. And Totally. I agree. Yeah. You can hear the creeks. You can see the glistening lights coming off of the streets that are covered in rain. It did a great job of um, showing all the different kinds of people here, too. Yeah. Uh, there's no sort of whitewashing or sort of privileging the... I thought they did a great job showing the diversity and uh, not just racial and age diversity, but the economic diversity of the city. One of the first places Paul Newman visits is a church with a homeless shelter in it, where he immediately hits up the priest for a hundred bucks that he owes him from gambling <laughs> from way back in the day before the priest was a priest. Right. The, the guy is not a priest. The guy, the, Isn't he? I thought he was a clergyman of some kind. Well, maybe he became one, but he's definitely not a genuine one. What I'm getting at is he's definitely a schemer and a, and a sleazy uh, snake oh, oil yes. salesman type. You know? <laughs> he's still that guy. You know, Even if sometimes he does good, he is still that guy. Uh, he even has that different voice you know, when he's preaching and stuff to the basically the Alcoholics uh, Anonymous group that, that came in, you know? Some of whom are homeless, some of whom are just there to, uh, you know, get uh, some sort of support. And they're the uh, the ones he can exploit, he can latch on to, you know, and get a little bit of money maybe, or at least recognition uh, for something, you know. Uh, the dregs, if you want to call them, of, of New Orleans society, you know. Well, like, well, New Orleans has always been a very poor city and yes. an African-American majority city as well. Yeah. Um, and movies about New Orleans tend to favor... Either like the you know the white upper class or the tourist side or the nonstop party dimension of it all. Yeah, it's it was kind of refreshing, especially because there are actually two introductions to the city. It opens with a parallel montage of Joanne Woodward entering and go, wandering her way through the quarter, and then Paul Newman entering, having his own individual path. So you actually you see twice as much as you typically would with a character introduction. And uh, I thought for a second it might be like a a next stop Wonderland type type of structure, which is uh, that was a uh, independent film from the late '90s, where it's a romantic comedy between two characters who never meet until the final scene, oh, uh, wow. which was a very cool idea. 
And then so when they did meet, I was a, a little disappointed, but I was also super exhilarated because they meet in Antiques on Lower Decatur Street, which is at the time was called Jules Tavern. Yeah. I've probably spent um, literally collective uh, years in Antiques and outside in the very places where Paul Newman and Joan Woodward were, were conversing and meeting for the first time. And all of those shots on the interior of Jules back, back then, it, it really hasn't changed at all. Um, except that the jukebox in Jules worked and the ju- jukebox in Antiques doesn't. Other than that, it was it was kind of like nothing had, nothing had changed. It was, it was kind of remarkable. Well, that, that kind of does by itself, outside of the movie and in the movie, says something about not just the city, but also what the movie is kind of saying, is uh, as much as things should change for the betterment of everyone, it's not, you know, pe- there are always going to be some people that don't want it to change. They want things to stay the same because it only benefits them. And uh, that includes the facade of New Orleans, you know. we got to keep this up, you know, but we're not going to renovate. We're not going to clean it up. We're just going to make it, leave it as it is. It doesn't matter if people get hurt. (laughs) You know, fuck that. (laughs) Uh, So so it kind of goes into that a little bit. Yeah, as long as building developers and people who are related to people in City Hall get their share of of the pie, doesn't matter what the what the actual population right. you know, goes through. Yeah, it's it's a funny thing how the city has always had this this divide, this interesting, you know, cultural divide of the the white kind of I call them the plantation set, the uptowners, oh. um, the the sort of the mansion minded, the people, the white flight, you know, kind of set who all left and who claim to love the culture so much, but like don't contribute anything to help, but like they're not oh, right. doing anything about say the corruption in city hall that makes none of our social services actually functional, you know, and so on. And like the standard of living, the wage stagnation here, the fact that it's a service industry town that hasn't seen any economic you know, progress for the service industry right. since the eighties. It's all that stuff is um, all like in the fabric of WUSA, which huh. is, released in 1970 and yeah, that, you know <laughs> like it's amazing it's like 50 years ago and it's <laughs> literally the exact same issues it's remarkable it's the exact same issues and not on top of that the city looks very much believe it or not for a movie that's kind of about an ever escalating decay of uh i guess morals and ideals and genuineness and goodness and all sorts of things um that humidity can do to a person. Uh, the city actually, believe it or not, looks a little better then than it does now. Not that the city is all completely gross or falling apart, but I mean, if, it's like, have you been to the city recently? You know, I mean, I, mean, I live here. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. You know, what I'm saying, like, take take a look around. Like, there, we got a building with a couple, unfortunately, dead bodies that are still in them, and uh, a city hall that could care less, really, except when it's convenient for them to throw a tarp over it. Oh, you're talking about the Hard Rock Hotel, that the debacle of all debacles. Yes. I mean, that, that thing is a monument to incompetence, corruption, and stupidity. It's, it's, uh, I think we should leave it up just to shame City Hall. Right, and we're going to demolish a couple of historical French Quarter buildings to take that building down? Like, I know, and that's just it. insult to insult, because the, because the Hard Rock Hotel itself was a historic civil rights location that they 
tore down to put up their stupid hotel. And of course, we saw how that went. Yes. You saw how the in the, the whole round of, what are we, six months of finger pointing and counting, eight months now, everyone's got a subcontractor and a sub-subcontractor and a boss and a boss's boss. <laughs> everyone's pointing fingers. No one's to blame. They're just passing the... the passing the buck. Passing... Passing the loony, yeah. Exactly, and it's like you know no one's going to really take any heat for it. I mean, it's going to be the same contractors building the same crap because that's that plantation set. It's all of those connections. It's, you know, I mean, think of all the mayors who've gone to prison in the city. Right. It's just about everybody. <laughs> it's crazy. They're kind of just the scapegoats, even if it was their fault or wasn't. You know, it's just, no, it's that person. Send them to jail. Yeah, and look, yeah. justice has been <laughs> so, done. But, geez, of course, the know? people, yeah, it's the, it's the money behind the power I guess you might call it. And that is part of the black heart of WUSA. This is not a technically a happy movie. No. I would argue this movie has a Terry Gilliam-ish sense of, uh, of hope in absolute depression. There is like an escape. Kind of like at the end of Brazil, when um, we pull back and he's still being tortured, but he's now within his own mind. He's not recognizing what's going on outside. So he, Terry Gilliam in interviews has been like, no, he won. That's, that's his way of winning. He's, he's not involved anymore in, in what's going on in the rest of the world. He's retreated, but he also won. How do you get that out of the ending of WUSA that ends with two of the three characters dead? And <laughs> it's in that, in. actually. It's uh, not in Perkins's death. That's much more sad than uh, what happens to Joanne Woodward. Okay, she plays it extremely well. I mean, everyone's really good in this, but her in particular, uh, I mean, Paul Newman's got the charm and the wittiness. He's given all the awesome lines to say that are smart-ass and intelligent, but really he's he has no clue and nothing to go with uh, in terms of uh, his life. You got Anthony Perkins playing up the whole uh, idealistic, anxiety-filled individual who's guilt-ridden and all this stuff. And then you got her, who's completely stripped down. She probably wasn't fully educated in the um, public school system, I think she even says at one point she's she feels she's kind of stupid. That's those are her words. She doesn't use a lot of words and sentences. She keeps it very simple and to the point. Uh, but she's also kind of pure in that way, even though she's, you know, she's had to do some some things in her life, you know. Yeah, she's not from New Orleans. Her character is a tra travels and is a is obviously a prostitute. Yes. Based on the conversation yeah. that the manager of. Jules Tavern has with her. He asks her, are you independent-minded? And she's like, well, what does that mean? And he's like, look, independent, you can't hustle around here without representation. Right. And yeah. suddenly I was like, oh, wow, th this is the language of acting, too, you know, um, representation yeah, yeah, it's, and it's... so forth. You have to be in the guild, that kind of thing. So I thought <laughs> that was a kind of oh, funny parallel. Oh, you mean parallel. literally about actors, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> they must have chuckled about that on set, I imagine. <laughs> oh, I, I bet. I bet, absolutely. It's nice to have fun with those kind of things, to be a little meta without anyone knowing you're being meta. It was after the, 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 the large-scale stadium rally riot, which had all the feels of the inevitable endgame of a um, Make America Great Again rally that uh, everyone's just waiting for. After that... Uh, she's in jail because she got caught with uh, marijuana and she's being led in, down this really long and hopeless hallway of just cells full of women that probably have her very history and experience, you know, and you're given all this time to really think about her place. And throughout the movie, she's been this wonderful example of 
how you know you can be essentially forced into this uh, crazy system of control where you almost don't have a, a destiny you can pick. It's it's almost like predetermined, you know, that you're going to be a poor woman who has to go out and hustle. But the movie, the, her arc ends. She's in the cell. She sees the chain that is connecting the bed to the wall. Uh, it's like a, you know, a prison bunk bed thing. And while I can't say she was smiling, I don't know, there was something in the eyes that I felt that it was almost like this was her way out. Very much like in Brazil, you know, that was his way out. I see that, yeah. I, the way I interpreted that is that she didn't believe Reinhardt would come save her. The one person she thought she could count on... Wasn't coming, yeah. Yeah, wasn't coming, and I don't know, I don't really know why she believed that in that moment. Um, they just got separated in, on the floor of the thing, and then getting pinched for the weed and the unfairness of that, because it obviously wasn't hers. Right. It's just uh, the kind of arbitrary, uh, you know, police bullshit that happens all the time in New Orleans. Bad situation breaks out, the police show up and just arrest all the wrong people. Right. Uh, you know, there's a sense of unfairness, but it's it's not... I mean, she must have gone to jail before yeah. and everything, but it, but it seems like this is the straw that broke the camel's back. And, and, I, and it clearly has something to do with her relationship with, with Reinhardt, but uh, it was not clear to me what that was. It was all played interior. And, and there's a cross-cutting there with a parallelism going on between the death of Anthony Perkins and the escape of Reinhardt and, and so on. And, and, it's, and I, I kept thinking, I wonder if this was amazing in the book, because I could right. not quite get a grasp of the specific emotional turns happening uh, in the character. And I kept thinking about Robert Altman's masterpiece, Nashville, which came out about uh, six or seven years after this film. Yeah. I wonder how much of that came from this. Well, uh, I think I might be able to fill in some gaps here, uh, at least in my inter interpretation. So, okay, there are these uh, three individuals, right? Newman, Perkins, and Woodward. They're on their own paths, essentially, their, their own roads, and all roads lead to WUSA in one way or another, uh, and what WUSA ultimately represents. It's like this system of, of put-down fear and, and control and exploitation, all these different things that have been affecting their lives in one way or the other. In Perkins' case, you know, he decides to actually take action. He's, he's got a totally different arc. They, each of them have specific arcs. He gets stomped to death rather violently by a crowd of people that he was, you know, hopefully trying to, like, enlighten in some way. Uh, I mean, he, I'm sure he realized that by, by doing what he did, he wasn't going to uh, save them specifically. But he was definitely doing this because he felt it was a right thing to do for everyone. Right. It's interesting that he wasn't like he was trampled to death by accident as, like, people were fleeing the arena that the stomping was very deliberate. It was basically like a lynching. A version it, of it. That ended with, instead of a hanging, but with a group beatdown. Yeah, okay. And I think that, you know, the, there's a point about, somewhere in there about the violence of the masses. Yes, there, and there, that, that, he gets stomped to death, basically, by a crowd who literally points him out. They're like, he's got a gun. He must be the guy that, you know, tried to do this. It reminded me kind of, not to get back to Trump, but at some of his rallies, people would not just yell and shout, at someone that Trump would point out, they they could potentially get violent at any point if Trump were to, to say one word. Yeah. yeah, no, he's he's pointed out journalists in the crowd yes. in the past, and they and the crowd has got turned violent on the journalists. There you go. So yeah, but I mean, we're talking fifty years ago. 
Right, yeah. It's scary how prescient it is. It's amazing. So, okay, and there is a parallel here. Now, they're economically speaking and uh, speaking with regards to desperation and in their own lives and uh, the feeling of helplessness and all that, they share that with everyone else that's being hurt and put down in the movie, but they are also still white. So he's getting essentially lynched. And then the next scene, Joanna hangs. Now she hangs herself. So it's still a hanging though, but it's not a racially motivated hanging. It's not really a, um, remember in uh, the hateful eight, when the movie ends with Samuel Jackson and Walton Goggins, hanging uh jennifer jason lee yep i remember i remember very vividly thinking what is tarantino trying to say if anything here i don't think tarantino means anything when he does something i mean tarantino is like he's the embodiment of white privilege filmmaking oh yeah well yeah, i can see that but definitely there was something going on there maybe that he wasn't intending but i, I couldn't figure it out so i came to that conclusion about joanna's ending based off the parallel to what happened to Perkins. You know, neither of them deserved what ultimately happened to them. They were also victims of, a, of an unfair and unjust world, specifically America, and even more specifically, the Deep South. If you look at the, the triptych, I mean, you have Anthony Perkins, who's very naive and idealistic, and clearly comes from a, a little bit more of a privileged background than the other two. Yeah. Um, Paul Newman is an alcoholic, and that's one of his controlling forces. And, and then Joanne Woodward is basically controlled by her poverty. So you have Newman controlled by alcoholism, her controlled by poverty, and uh, Perkins controlled by his idealism. And, yes. and all three characters are sort of ultimately ineffectual in making anything kind of happen. And in, in it's almost like three archetypes of failed... Yeah, three archetypes of, of failure. Like, there's a sort of... I wonder if the if the mo film's moral is that, like, don't be any one of these things. Like, Newman's lesson is can, if you don't control your personal demons, you're going to end up with nobody and, and not being able to do anything. Perkins' lesson is if your idealism isn't grounded in reality, you're going to take it too far and end up self being self-destructive. And Woodward's lesson would be something like... Um, if if you you can't live a fantasy, educate yourself and you know expand your horizons or something to that effect. It's uh, it, you know it's total speculation on my part. I mean it's a theory because it, it feels like no, there's okay. a a, me, a political meaning to it, but it's <laughs> I, I wonder if the meaning is more in the archetypes and less in the complete narrative because like because it is a triptych yeah. and there are three stories. Well, maybe it's got three lessons instead of one big lesson. I think it's probably got more than uh, three lessons, actually. But definitely the triptych are the keys here to at least finding clues to what those other lessons could very well be. There, there are just many aspects here. Like, okay, I guess we haven't really gotten into the overall conspiracy going on. It's mm. not an unbelievable conspiracy in any regard. It's actually something that I think has been documented as actually happening in our reality many times over. Are you referring to the welfare system, what uh, Perkins uncovers? Yeah, what he, well, he's working as a, uh, I guess, an independent contractor, <laughs> to bring up that word again. A tool of the man. There you go. He's a tool of the man, but he doesn't know it. You know, she might have an idea that she could possibly be one, but uh, he doesn't know it. He thinks he's doing some sort of survey, going home to home, community to community, to get information on um, families and individuals who have been receiving welfare what their lives are like, you know, so on and so forth. 
the person he's, that's, I guess, a supervisor, if you want to call him that, he's basically uh, giving Perkins these instructions, you know, like, go to these places, take down this information, bring it back to me, maybe take some pictures along the way, you know. But so he starts to suspect there's something wrong here, and he feels like it's related to WUSA in some way, and one thing leads to another, and he, in fact, discovers that the people that run WUSA, which is a very right-wing radio network... <laughs> I guess reminiscent of One America News, maybe? It's uh, Fox News, essentially. It's, Fox it's a, News, essentially, it's a, yeah. It's a talk radio station pretending to give news out, but is really giving alarmist, propagandist, right-wing spin. The agenda is keep white people afraid of poor black people. Yes. And that's where yes. the welfare component comes in, because the surveys right. Perkins are taking are basically designed to keep people off welfare, not keep them on welfare. And so that's where Perkins hits the wall ideologically and goes into a tailspin. <laughs> well, the data being, I think the way I understood it was in the scene where he begins to figure it out, he goes to a supervisor's headquarters, if you want to call it that. It could very well have been a plantation he retrofitted. I don't know. No, that building was amazing. I, it's the one with the split staircase, right? And the stairs yeah. down the middle where the camera does that yeah. crazy two-story tall boom down from the second level to the yeah, first. Yeah. I was like, what? Right, it's like the set of Django Unchained. Right, right. And that's another thing, too, to bring up. There's a lot of really good production design and photography. On location, baby. Yes, it all feels very tangible. Anyways, he's talking to this guy. The guy is basically like, Perkins is trying to get down to what is happening. But the, the black man is like, you come in here asking what's happening? I should be asking you what's happening. No, he's the voice of reason. He, right, he's, he's like... like <laughs> he, he's trying to keep Perkins... From getting in trouble. I mean, there's a clear sense that this guy has an authority on this uh, information from his yeah. experience and from years living in the city. And Perkins has basically just wandered into town with his long lens black and white and there camera. You go. And he thinks he's going to, like, save the system. There we have it. Each of these three characters are not technically from New Orleans. Not that it's wrong to be a transplant, but they haven't been here long enough to have a full root in what's going on. But immediately, he's like, oh, i got to figure out why I'm being hoodwinked. And <laughs> dude basically lays it out like, look, th this data you're getting is not helping anyone but people who want to kick these people off of their uh, benefits, you know? Exactly. It's, it keeps the people in power in power. Well, here's what I'm getting at. Okay, so <laughs> it's like they have these different dummy organizations between the guy that's running WUSA and then on the low end – the Lord of the Slums that I've referred to. And uh, and so get, get the information, bring it back to me. And all of this is to basically build sentiment in the community. I think they wanted to have a bunch of like statistics on their side when they make their case on the air. But that's not why he was doing the survey. The survey is for the city's welfare department. He's working basically for City Hall. Oh. And the collusion component comes in is that the people running the welfare program and the people running the radio station are like country club, you know, golfing buddies who hang out at the Playboy Club and like live in the same suburb. Oh, God, the Playboy Club scene. Oh, man. I, I that, that was, I mean, we could talk almost all day about that. <laughs> My jaw hit the floor when that scene came around. I was Did like, I, oh, fuck. <laughs> I mean, for two reasons, one being the scene itself, the, the setting <laughs> the setting by itself and the production design. Did you catch the location where it is? No, actually, I don't know where it is. Where was it? I'm pretty sure that's Common Street in the CBD, <laughs> just on the other side of Canal. 
Wow. Okay. Uh, that's pretty interesting. Uh, and that actually makes a lot of sense that that's in the CBD. Oh, it's a private club, but it's also full of tacky, <laughs> ridiculous. No, no, it's that full of dealership owners and you know, chubby rednecks. <laughs> <laughs> Everything look in that club looks like it's Chuck E. Cheese for man-child adults from the <laughs> South who yeah. want to think that they're like some kind of. Uh, authoritative, uh, influential figure who's more important than he really is in reality. You know, and it's so weird, too. It's like ripped right from Trump's life. It's what Mar-a-Logo is based on, I'm sure. When Trump went into the White House uh, and, I guess, got settled into the Oval Office, uh, one of the first things I noticed that changed was the curtains behind him. They were now gold-looking. I think he doesn't understand... I guess what, you know, fashion? Or... Well, I, I grew up on uh, Long Island Sound in the Northeast, um, about, you know, 65 miles from Trump Central in the 80s when he was, you know, calling for the execution of the Central Park Five and trying wow. to make himself into a star yeah. and showing up on talk shows and publishing The Art of the Deal and naming hotels after himself and all that crap. And he has never had any taste whatsoever. He's in an right. embarrassment <laughs> of style and aesthetic. Uh, not to mention, you <laughs> know, very uh, least. moral black yeah. hole sucking everything into it. He's always been a cancer. I mean, that's why New York hates him so much. New York understands him on a, on a fundamental right, yeah, level yeah. that nowhere else in the country does. You know that there's a great line that uh, Trump is what a dumb person thinks a rich person is like, you know? And, right, exactly. Um, and somehow that's been his entire, like, quote, career. is just basically <laughs> pulling shit over on rubes who think, you know... Rich guys are cool, and exactly. Trump is like an aspirational figure for goombas from Staten Island, and and uh, and apparently the South too. The South loves him, so it's it's one yes. of those things where you you wonder if it's a chicken and egg almost. Like is uh, Trump taking advantage of a corrupt culture? Is Trump corrupting the culture? And the answer is yes. So just to finish up about that club, <laughs> it's so fucking awful. He wa- you know, Anthony Perkins walks in there and it, he doesn't really seem to like blink or hesitate and look around like, what the fuck is this place? I think they, he alludes to his family being involved somehow in uh, the legal system. You know, I think he has a judge as an uncle or something. But he's walking around and you see the branding on the on the shirts, you know, not just the women, but on the, on the men, too. They're wearing like tuxedos or some shit. Yeah, Hugh Hefner was a pioneer of branding. <laughs> Someone actually designed like an out line of a of bunnies the same image of, a, of the playboy bunny essentially or maybe it was a knockoff of it yeah all over them no no that's the real that's what playboy clubs actually looked like that was not set dressing that was just that's exactly what it was i mean playboy clubs were all over the country at that point playboy started in the mid 50s and created these these uh, jazz clubs which uh, eventually kind of morphed into cocktail lounges and then you know gentlemen's clubs now those euphemisms, they weren't quite strip clubs and they weren't quite brothels, but the, the idea was that it's entirely for the upper class. I mean, it's, it's basically, you know, it's, it's, you mentioned um, Larry Flint before, in The People versus Larry Flint, which is a, one of my favorite Milos Forman right. movies, there's a scene where Woody Harrelson picks up Playboy and says, gentlemen, this magazine is mocking us <laughs> yeah. entirely for that whole thing. And, and that's what that Playboy club is for. When Perkins storms in it, the reason he doesn't really acknowledge any of that stuff is because for the class, remember, he's basically going into enemy territory. This, yeah. These are the clubs, the, the smoke-filled rooms of, of metaphor that people refer to are things like the Playboy Clubs. Right. 
and that's where deals get made and you know judges rub elbows with real estate developers and money gets passed around it's the lion's den so so to speak but what's horrifically sad and funny about this particular scene is okay he's walking in with this attitude he's storming in no i gotta see these guys right now you know and he's gonna show them the he's gonna give them the business and everything and he kind he kind of does but the thing is, we're slowly getting, you know, used to this this really tacky club, which is presumably, like we're, we're saying, a private, exclusive VIP place just for the elites of that local community, the city. And this is what they think they should be surrounded by? These are poorly educated rich people. Like, you ever there heard you of the redneck, redneck Riviera? Like, this is Redneck Riviera chic. <laughs> yes. This is what the... Eighth generation good old boys think is like the life of Riley, basically. It's 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 so sad how generations after generations, but it's like it, they just devolve over time from wherever they originally were to some fucking asshole jerk, you know, at a buffet in a private club that is literally like a chain restaurant. I, I thought the casting was uh, perfect for that guy, uh, as well as a lot of the kind of. People in power were cast so well. Right, like the, the guy he confronts. They, they don't have that intimidating supervillain vibe that they might in like a badly made movie. Like they all look like the real thing, which is like yeah. you see these people and you're like, I can't believe these people have power over anything. Right, you right. Know? But yet they do and you have to deal with it. It reminded me of Donald Trump Jr. taking that photo of himself in the woods wearing what he thinks woodsmanish lumberjack clothing is, but... He's got that stupid Beavis and Butthead smile on him because he's the son of a guy who, who says he's very rich and, and he's from a family that has been rich for a long time now. You said uh, earlier that you were going to um, jump out to the uh, what your big picture interpretation of the film is. I'm dying to hear it. Okay. Uh, let me... Uh, okay. I, this was actually, like I think, the one, two... I think this is on the third page of notes that I wrote. That's quite a notebook you got there, Bill. Like, how many pages of notes did you take? Third out of five that are horribly organized and scrawled with quotes and stuff. But basically, I start questioning things towards the bottom of the third page. Uh, let's see. Uh, survey is a sham to stir anti-welfare sentiment. More racial disparity. Okay, these are all obvious things. Aggression and incendiary discontent. But then below that, okay, these are words with question marks next to them. Power? Control? These are, these are basically like, I'm trying to think, okay, what is the ultimate theme uh, reason for these, for these elites to be doing this stuff? Are they looking for more of what? Need to feel important? Need to have their life justified? Legacy? I wrote, uh, for a system nobody benefits from, the system just exists to exist. That's a great point. It's, it's status quo for the purpose of status quo. We've been in charge. We're always going to be in charge. We've been in charge. We, we have to stay in charge. You know? Right. It's, et cetera, et cetera. And we don't know why. There, there is no answer as to why. We're, oh, because we're white. Well, but white is a and, construct. And, and also white and wealthy. Yeah. It's economic power and racial power intertwined. The chicken and the egg, you know, uh, or a chicken with its head cut off. Or we we spent a lot of time talking about the establishment. How do you feel about the countercultures depiction in the film? Um, the hippies, in particular, 
Uh, there's only a handful of scenes with hippies in them in the film. But there is one very important scene with the uh, the hippies. It's yeah, and I couldn't tell if the if they were supposed to be taken seriously or as parodies. Like it, they walked this really interesting ambiguity between wise and like definitely more street smart than Perkins, right? Yeah. But at the same time, they seemed very cartoonish, and the and the fact that um, Reinhardt's hanging out with them, like cool ass Paul Newman. Vintage peak Paul Newman is hanging out yeah. with uh, a bunch of guys from Central Casting. Look, you know, look like the <laughs> cast of well, Welcome Back, Cotter or something. Okay, well, <laughs> smoking weed, and what they're saying is so abstract that I can't tell if the movie's quite laughing at them. Especially the scene where they're like, "What's happening out there, man? Look, watch the taco trucks, man. That's what's happening." Yes, and the girl, yes, the girl, I love that line. The girl says. <laughs> Yeah, man. Like, look at Walgreens. Look, look at look at Walgreens, man. It's down the street. It's happening right in front of us, man. It's on another. I, uh, it, it's I had like, no idea there even was a Walgreens in 1970. Okay, well, I, look, I love this scene for for starters. Um, one, if we call it typecasting, cartoonish typecasting, it's still kind of accurate in this case. I know we've I've seen many movies from that time and even now that feature heightened theatrical hippie characters. But then you see interviews, like real documentary interviews with young people from the 60s, and a lot of these particular hippies are very much as they're depicted. You know, they're just, yes, they're heightened for effect in this movie too, but I think there's a lot of truth to what they're doing and truth to what they're saying. So you think the, I'm trying to interpret... Yeah. Are you are you saying that the movie takes them seriously then? As a, I think it's like a half and half. I think they're definitely having fun with that scene. The movie, Stuart Rosenberg's, uh, who's the director. I think he's definitely having fun with with the different tempos of that scene. You know, like okay, you got these characters over here. They're drugged out of their minds and they're saying weird philosophical shit that is also kind of stupid at the same time, but. And when I was listening to it and I was trying to understand it, I was like, you know, in a really stupid way, that makes a lot of sense, actually. It's kind of like um, you're drugged out on a porch somewhere and you're looking up at the sky and you see all the stars at night. And you're like, you know, man, <laughs> sometimes I think the stars are like God's salt. OK, yep. <laughs> and, and one day and one day he's going to eat us. What if the earth was a giant kernel of popcorn <laughs> yeah. and we're like the salt on it? Right, exactly. And what if we're about to be eaten because we're in God's movie theater and that's why the sky is dark? Yes. Maybe this is because I'm a critic and I'm very analytical of things and I try to see the positive in almost anything. So when it comes to this scene, which might very well be just hippies saying bullshit, while Paul Newman, the nihilist, who's also drunk and a little high, is also heightened, has that personality of his is coming out much more aggressively and mean-spirited and violently as a result. And the hippies around him are just kind of like going with it. Like, yeah, they're feeding off this, you know? I think there's still nuggets of some truth there to what they're saying and how they're behaving. Oh, my favorite line. This wasn't from the hippies, but this was from Newman. He says he's giving um, uh, Perkins some advice at the very end of their conversation. He says, drop dead while you're surrounded by friends. Ah, oh, that's very New Orleans. Yes, I was like, <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> you know, like, that kind of wraps up the ultimate uh, apex of what he's about at, throughout the movie until maybe the end. 
Yeah. Maybe you can interpret him as the sort of the representation of hedonism, then, if that's his thesis statement. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I think hedonism is probably how he just deals with everything, you know, to avoid the fact that everything's falling to shit. And even if you know it, you can't do anything about it. So just have fun. It was definitely not in a helpful way. I can tell you that it was. It was. It was like coming from a, a sense of desperation from um, and hopelessness, which is very prevalent in the movie yeah. from Newman. I love this uh, performance from him. It's one of those great dark Newman performances that yeah. he, he gives in movies like HUD, for instance, where he he's uh, just a dark <laughs> son of a bitch, and he worked with Stuart uh, Rosenberg a ton of times. He, you know, this is the guy who directed Cool Hand Luke for him in uh, 67, and he went on to work with him like four or five more times over the 70s and 80s. That's up there with Don Siegel and Clint Eastwood. (laughs) I mean, it's crazy. And so they must have really liked each other and must have respected their aesthetic. Uh, And Newman, this is his follow-up film to Butch Cassidy, and so he must have... I mean, that's a glib movie star, capital M, capital S role, and I think he wanted to get back to his, like real, you know, Strasbourg method actor roots and do something dark and challenging um, and play somebody who's not necessarily heroic or likable. And he did a great job, and it was just nice to see him in that mode. Right, and uh, it, it, was absolute, it was an absolute pleasure to see. I want to say I read somewhere, uh, possibly Wikipedia, it may have been in a review, though, that Paul Newman, when he was asked about the movie, uh, I think years down the line, I think he said something like that was the most important movie I had ever done. Oh, nice. You know, something along those lines. Well, Paul was, um, as a just human being, Paul and Joanne were huge philanthropists. Yeah, he gave yeah, over, yeah. like, I think half a billion dollars in ch- to charity over the course of the run of Newman's own products, as well as giving, I mean, they were they were basically <laughs> supporting charity and, and they're just died in the wool leftists. And it, it, uh, that kind of political statements were very important to him. As well, he took acting seriously, but like the movie business, not so much. Right, right. He has a great quote. I mean, if you want to know what this guy's kind of ethos was like, they asked him. He he married Joanne Woodward in the fifties, I believe, and it was, oh, right. it was yeah, one of those yeah. like relationships that was just you know you expected him to die the day after she dies or some kind of you know horribly romantic thing like that. Uh, and when uh, they asked, you know, do you ever get tempted? Uh, you work with all these beautiful movie stars. Do you? You know, ever get tempted to fool around with any of them? He said, that's crazy. Why, why go out for hamburger when you have steak at home? <laughs> so I'm going to ask you a question, because um, I had this crazy idea this morning, yeah. uh, thinking about this movie as a sort of speculative what-if situation. Do you remember what the big literary event of 1969 in New Orleans was? There was a, a novel written in 69 that is one of the defining novels of New Orleans. What? Confederacy of Dunces. So John Kennedy Toole committed suicide yeah. after sending that book out to publishers and uh, getting rejected. And uh, the book was never published until around 1980 when Walker Percy, the novelist and Tulane professor, got the manuscript from his mom. Yeah. And in a parallel universe, imagine if Walker Percy or somebody got the book in 69 and it became the hot book of that year and Newman and Woodward were looking to work together with their friend Stuart Rosenberg again. And they're like, let's shoot a movie in New Orleans. I've got this book here, that what WUSA was based on, a book called Hall of Mirrors by Robert Stone, a 1967 yeah. novel. Or we have this other book. It's more of a satiric comedy about a guy named Ignatius Riley 
Maybe we could have you guys, maybe Woodward would play the mom, and Newman could play his boss, and so on, and we could set it up. And then you could have had uh, another movie kind of also about the counterculture, but you'd have with with this crazy comic character in the middle, you know? Right. It it would have a a little bit more of a uh, kind of a lifted spirit to it, you know? Yeah, it wouldn't be as heavy-hearted as this for sure. But (laughs) that's an interesting thing, because that could have happened if Tool had not committed suicide and the book had gotten out, it's possible that this production would have been a production of that instead as the next hot novel. Um, we'll never know, of course, but it's interesting to think about. We will never know. Uh, although I do know David Dubow is is uh, writing right now an adaptation of, what is it, the the making of that book or the something like that? Uh, I forget what it's called, the actual Oh, the story. John Kennedy Tool story? Yeah, I think so. I think it's called Butterfly and the Typewriter. That's interesting. He was contracted to do it, I'm not sure, but uh, he's working on it, and uh, that's that's very cool, you know. They both talk about the counterculture. As somebody who, I moved to New Orleans in 2006 after Katrina, basically into the aftermath, and there was this Americana boom in the, the rest of the country, and yeah. all the 20-somethings started wearing, you know, overalls and playing banjo oh. and everything, and, um, and New Orleans had this crazy boom of influx from other parts of the country of people who love the old timiness um, and the kind of roots music here that, I mean, New Orleans never left that. I mean, we're sort of immune to trends in that way. So it's like New Orleans goes in and out of style as America goes through its trendy phases. And the sixties here must've been out of control when you think about uh, how prevalent hippie culture was and the kind of freedom, the lawlessness of New Orleans. The the counterculture plays a huge role in Confederacy of Dunces as well as WUSA the, the sort of ultra-progressive politics that that exist here exist hand-in-hand with a kind of libertarianism or, or anarchism, depending on the person, you know, you're talking to. It's really interesting to consider that the city was probably full of, of hitchhikers who didn't know anything about New Orleans, yeah. but just they just love peace and freedom and drugs, man. Um, at the same time, it was probably full of, of uh, well-intentioned do-gooders coming to town because... The, a lot of the 60s was fueled by a kind of idealism um, left over from the civil rights movement and so forth. Although I guess by the 70s it was becoming more of a, a fashion uh, statement than, than an ideological statement. Yeah. I, I thought that was really interesting as a time capsule. Yeah, definitely. There's an interesting movie to be made, hypothetically, that's a period film about New Orleans in the 60s where you have the hustler culture, the service industry culture clashing with the 60s kids who are coming into their power in a way yeah it's it makes one wonder you know what other kind of lessons you could draw from this movie to make a a future film that would be uh, really cool what what do you what do you think bill well i think uh i'm gonna draw back from my notebook there are two quotes here actually um one was a conversation between woodward and newman uh she's telling him a story of how she got the scar on her face and uh, there was a conversation she was having with some boyfriend or husband, and the guy just cut her because she, she said something. And uh, he, she says, I must have said the first thing that came to my head. And then he responds, Newman, says, uh, well, you can't do that in Texas. But the, this next thought that I had was basically a clash between the 60s and the 70s, or the transition. Uh, and I wrote, um, the promise of the 60s meets the brick to the face of the 70s. Interesting. Well, that was my way of saying it, but there's this line from uh, the cartoon show. It was a Nicktoon uh, called Rugrats. There was a bit in there where one of the neighbors gets angry at the main character's uh, parents, and she's like, you know, get with the program. The 60s are over, and we lost. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, that's a line from The Big Lebowski as well. 
Yeah, right, exactly. You know? There you go, right? Get out, you bum! <laughs> Whatever he shouts at him. Um, but uh, so, so as a avid film yeah. uh, connoisseur, if someone was to make a movie about the counterculture, maybe a modern-day version of a counterculture movie in New Orleans, what, what elements would you think would, would be good to include? Well, uh, just, I guess it depends, of course, the, the time and place, but New Orleans is kind of uh, immune to, like you said, trends. So if an independent filmmaker wants to make a movie uh, that involves uh, counterculture thinking, maybe apply to contemporary politics and, and culture and people, you know, um, I would say draw from the things you've observed and how you interpret them. You know, maybe do a little bit of research, but don't violate your own interpretation, your own observations. You know, that's the uniqueness of the story. And don't be afraid to get out of your comfort zone. Don't stay within the iconic parts of uh, New Orleans because you're, you're just going to find this, the stuff you already knew. Venture out. Don't be afraid to go to, um, I mean, don't, don't just go down the wrong, you know, a street that obviously looks like it's going to, you know, lead to your death or something. But I'm, I, don't mean, I don't mean people killing you. I mean like a pothole. Uh, <laughs> you know, avoid those pothole streets because uh, more often than not, you'll, you'll go down a neighborhood and you won't get attacked. Exactly. You know? So don't be afraid. Yeah, of, get to know your city. That's great advice. Totally. Get to know your city. Get to know your neighbors and just talk to people, you know, and that, that's an awesome note to end on. Um, let me ask you a final question. If you just as a, uh, you get to pick one, imagine a great filmmaker, your favorite filmmaker, political filmmaker comes to town and he's going to do a movie about uh, politics in New Orleans. And he asks, he says, Bill, I want your insight on this. I'm going to, I have a choice. I can either make a film about Trump's America from a New Orleans perspective, or it can do a film that takes place entirely within New Orleans about the schism between the downtown working class African-American population and the uptown white plantation set. Uh, which movie would you rather see? The second one. That's vastly more interesting to me. I, I mean, yes, the, the whole Trump, you know, versus everything uh, kind of thing. I mean, that's already playing out in real time. And again, it's a story of, that we've said multiple times. So I would be more interested in the challenges that regular neighborhood people who have these things imparted on them from outside forces that they really can't do a lot to control directly. Uh, or Right. It's systemic disenfranchisement, but it's happening at a local level instead of a national. I would like to see more stories with whatever details you can find from your own interpretations or from other people's interpretations uh, that highlight those areas of the city and all the quirks and all the uh, the weirdos. <laughs> all right, Bill. Well, thank you so much uh, for being yeah. on the on the show. Um, whoa, a bug just fell on me. Oh, crazy! <laughs> I left my side door open, and I guess it flew in. Um, yeah, thank you so much for being on the show. A fantastic movie. I'm sure you brought it to everybody's attention because this is a real deep cut, as they say. It didn't even. I put a hundred and twenty some odd movies on my uh, list to choose from, and I knew it wasn't comprehensive, but I, I couldn't imagine there was a Paul Newman movie from <laughs> from the modern era that I had missed. Lo and behold, there you go, WUSA. So um, I had to make it just a step, you know, 
more difficult sort of. No, that's that means the system's working because this the whole point of this podcast is to ed- educate myself and pick the brains of the people in the local film community and uh, sure. hopefully people listening can learn th- a thing or two somewhere along the way as I learn as we go. So yeah, this is fantastic. And just as a special note to list listeners who uh, want to watch this movie, it is hard to find. It's not really in print. Uh, DVD or Blu-ray, although I think there might be a few Blu-rays out there. Uh, I got it. Don't ask me how exactly, but I'll say the internet is full of wonders. BitTorrent. It also might be on YouTube, too. So. <laughs> well, I can, we can always delete that if you want. <laughs> no, it's okay. Leave it in. It's fine. Tell, tell the people where they can find your writing and uh, you on the socials and all that. I'm on Twitter, at BillReviews. And I have a blog, norealidea.com, that is N-E-A-U-X-R-E-E-L-I-D-E-A.com. Excellent. Uh, Thank you so much, man. And uh, (laughs) we're going to be dropping this episode in, um, I'm trying to do the, i got to take off my shoes to count, um, but I think you're episode five or six, and that means you're going to be out in late June, early July. Oh, nice. Okay. Cool. Oh, by the way, I've, I've had an absolute blast with this one. Subscribe! Rate, review, tell your friends, etc.